I've got a, a drawing up here with me, a colouring in. Um, during the week, my daughter Evelyn wanted to help me with my work and um, I didn't want to just push her away and so I said, okay, well, what would really help me is if you did a colouring in of the story that I'm talking about uh, on Sunday night. So that's it there and um, we're looking at the chapter in Acts where... Uh, they pray for boldness and the building shakes. And um, so there, she had to ask what these lines were for. And I was like, oh, the building's meant to be shaking. So we got to talk about the story and, and go through that. So um, this is going to help me preach tonight and, uh, and to remind me. And, uh, you know, we, we promised at the start of this whole venture in our evening service of preaching through the book of Acts that we were simply going to open the Bible and let it speak to us, let God's word say what it uh, wants to say, and we end up in this very uh, interesting place like tonight where the, the message that I've got, the burden that I've got to bring you is, is almost nothing like what you would expect to hear from this passage uh, were you to, to study it and come to some kind of teaching conclusion. But funnily enough, the themes throughout the worship are exactly the same. The themes through Pat's message this morning were exactly the same, and so we're much better to uh, get on with that and not try and make it something that it's not. But it's a bit disappointing because there are some exciting things about this story uh, to talk about, which I'm not going to get to. Like, why does the room shake? Why does the room shake? What, you know, God's presence is so concentrated there that the whole building starts to shake. You know, do churches need earthquake insurance for prayer meetings? I'm uh, not going to get to talk about that, unfortunately, but I would love to chat about it afterwards if, if you're interested because it's, it's very cool. But no, what's... What's happening at the moment is, is that we are, I sense that there's just a lot of static in people's lives at the moment. And we can look at a story like this and we can say, that's great for the disciples, you know, living in first century Palestine in Jerusalem there. And like their lives are about Jesus and, and they've got nothing else to do. And, and how great is it that they can be so, you know, set apart uh, to just pray an incredible prayer of boldness, to go out and speak more boldly, to talk about Jesus and to spend their lives witnessing. But meanwhile, you know, I live in the 21st century and I'm trying to be godly. I'm trying to be holy and I'm trying to be obedient to God, but my life just won't calm down. Things won't go away. I would love to be able to pray a prayer of boldness like this, that I would just go out in the street and proclaim the name of Jesus and see people uh, saved and see God's hand work powerfully through miracles and, and people getting healed and, and finding faith. But it just, life does not calm down. There's all this static around. You know, if you're a young adult, you don't realize how lucky you are, how, how much space you have in, in your life to be able to do, do things like that. And you know, there's somewhere in... in oh, I can't remember the book, but it says, it's good for a man to bear the burden in his youth. And I used to, to relish those days of my youth and go, wow, this is a, a great time for me to be able to serve God and, and just get on with it. Because that time changes when you get older. And when you, when you start a family and you've got family commitments, or when you're in your career, when you're running a business, and you, know, you, you, you kind of get to the point where you think, you know, I'm a, I'm a Christian, right? I belong to God. I'm a, I'm a child of God. I should be seeing God do stuff in my life. And, and yet my life is filled with nappies and, you know, car accidents and staff wanting to, to leave or, or bosses who want to, you know, uh, bully me or, or just things that are hard. And it doesn't matter how holy I try and be, those things don't go away. 
how can we take a story like this where these believers pray for boldness and to apply it to, to the, what our lives look like? Because we can't just pull out of everything and go and, I don't know, start a commune. I mean, what does that achieve? Very little. It would be nice. We've talked about it, Kate, haven't we? We're not going to do it, though. <laughs> but how, how do we get there? Because you know what? You are a Christian. You are made for more. There is more to your life than all of that static. How do you, how do you fix your eyes on the prize? How do you let that static melt away and go, you know what, I belong to God and my life should be doing something for his kingdom. How do you get there? And so let me just run to my main point here because you need to lift your eyes above your problems. You need to stop looking and concentrating on what is making your life hard and start looking at what God is doing and what God has always been doing. Because the reason that we praise him in the mountains and we praise him the same in the valleys is because he's the same God in the mountains and he's the same God in the valleys. And so our praise is based on who he is, not where we are. And sometimes we can get to a place of joy and, and we're just coming from these deep wells of God is doing these incredible things in our life. But sometimes that well feels dry and we praise God the same because he hasn't changed. And so tonight is about trying to get us this perspective where we can lift our eyes above our problems, above the static, where we can look at what God is doing and we can trust God because God is in control and God is good. I found great comfort in this passage over this week. It, the, trying to apply these truths to my life has, has led to a great deal of, of peace. And I'm hoping to, to be able to point you in the same direction. But I need to just articulate the difference between comfort and comfortability. Because we have a God of comfort, and it's appropriate for us to pray his comfort and his presence into our life. Because comfort is company when you're lonely, power when you're weak, strength when you're feeling power when you're powerless, strength when you're feeling weak. Ultimately, comfort is the presence of God in your situation, whereas comfortability is the idol of the West, which is ease of circumstances. And so let's just take a moment now to think, what was the last prayer you prayed? Was it a prayer of God's presence into your life? Or was it a prayer of comfortability? God, make my life easier. God, take my problems away. Or was it one of God, come, let me feel your presence. Let me see what you're doing. I mean it. Let's take a moment. Uh, think about your prayer life. I'll give you a bit of time. We're in Acts chapter 4 and starting at verse 23. And we're in kind of the last part of this sort of mini section. And it's actually our final emboldened series. And it's about emboldened prayer. And the question that we're answering is how do we get there to the point that we can pray a prayer that's that bold? Because it's a very easy stick for a preacher to reach for to say, 
your prayer life's not good enough. You need to be praying this, and that's not where we're going. That's not what we're doing. But how do we get there? How do we get to the place where we can pray boldly like they did? Because at the end of this little mini story, we've had the lame beggar who's been healed at the beautiful gates. Peter and John have walked into the temple. A crowd has rushed around them. Peter has proclaimed boldly the message of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. And he says, you killed the author of life. You denied the one who was holy and righteous and who was the Messiah who was sent for you. And he says that you need to repent and believe in the gospel, believe in Jesus. And then that causes some trouble, just like it did for Jesus. The religious leaders grab Peter and John and they take them into custody. They're arrested and they're placed before the Sanhedrin, which is a very intimidating uh, environment. If you want to look up historically what that scene looks like, it's, it's designed to intimidate. And so they stood there and they were questioned and they wanted to know, in what power, in what name do you do these things? And then Peter and John, just filled with boldness, said, is that let it be known to you that the name of Jesus, whom you crucified, is the power by which these things are done. And then the, the religious leaders kind of freak out and they're like, we weren't kind of expecting that answer. And what do we do about it? Because the whole of Jerusalem is in a buzz. They've seen this incredible miracle, which is undeniable. And so we can't, well, you know, kill these people or, or flog them because, you know, we can't deny that this man's been healed. And we believe as, you know, good uh, theologically sound uh, Sadducees and, and Pharisees that only Yahweh can do that. So for us to do something to them is, is going to be bad for us. So they're like, okay, well, let's just warn them. Let's send them away with threats. You know, we, we charge you not to ever speak or teach in the name of Jesus ever again. And does that work? Does it do anything? Well, Peter and John just look at them and say, well, look, if it's better for us to follow you or follow God, I mean, you can decide, but we just can't shut up. That's the one thing we cannot do is to stop speaking about what we've seen and what we've heard. And so the message of Jesus is overcoming every opposition, but they come back with threats. They were in danger. Their lives were literally threatened. They say, if you preach this name again, we're coming for you. We're coming after you. And so that's the context with which they arrive back to their friends. And I don't know if, if you can relate to, to the story of your high school group up to no good doing something and two of you get caught and taken to the principal's office and get a good talking to there and they come back. How do you react? Oh, what do they say? Did you, did you get in trouble? Have you got a detention? Did you get suspended? Did you dob in on us? They would probably be thinking, oh, we got away with one. We got lucky. But that's not what happens. These two people get back and, and Peter and John relate the, the whole idea to them. And then what is their response? Verse 23. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father, David. Their friends get back and immediately they join together and they proclaim a theological fact that God is sovereign. And yes, we're going to get into the theology of sovereignty tonight. Half of you are rolling your eyes. Great theology lecture. The other half are rubbing your hands because there's nothing more you love than a good theological can of worms. 
You know, the early bird might get the worm, but the theology student will sit there all day and lick out the can. Sorry for that mental image. Yeah. No, there was a song written about the experiences of a, of a theology student. You might know it. Nobody likes me, everybody hates me, may as well go and eat worms. No, I can say that because I have been a theology student before. But we're going to, we're going to get there. And please, please don't switch off when we talk about sovereignty and theology, okay? Because this is actually a critically important part of our understanding in order to get to that place where we can lift our eyes above our circumstances, where we can let go of the static in our life, and where we can pray these prayers of boldness. And so notice that when they address God, it says sovereign Lord. Now, most of the time, when they talk to God in prayer, they call him kurios, which is the Greek word translated as Lord, which is like a polite term. It does mean, you know, Lord, the Lord, but it's like sir. You would call your, um, you know, someone you're trying to be respectful to, you would, you would call them sir. But here it's not the word kurios, it's the word despotes. And for those of you who know what the word despot means, that's exactly where it comes from. And so this title is one that, uh, well, for those of you who don't know what despot means, it's, it's somebody who rules with, with an iron grip. The word is describing the nature of their rule, that they are totally in control, totally over what's talking about. It's, it's, there's no need for, for politeness, and in fact, in English, it has negative connotations. But in Greek, it was an appropriate title for somebody who was master, boss, lord. And so they proclaim here that, think about these circumstances that have happened, and the first thing that they say is, sovereign lord, boss, master, you are master over all of these circumstances. And then they go on to proclaim even more evidence of that when they say, you created everything. God has to be master of everything if he creates it. And then he said, you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, David. And, and David is called servant because that is the appropriate title in uh, response to the word master used earlier. And so the first thing that they do is to declare the, the, the mastery and the preeminence and the presidence of God over this whole situation. And notice how it says that he spoke through David. And so their perspective of the Old Testament, of the Jewish scriptures, was that they were written by God, that it was the very words of God, that when David was writing, God was speaking. Now, what happened in that scene? Did, did David just fall into a trance and the, and the pen sort of went like that? Well, no, because we see David's emotions, we see his experiences, we see his personality come through in his writing. And so there's this cooperation between uh, God's divine sovereignty and between the action of that person at that moment, which results in God speaking. Right? David wrote, but God spoke. There's a cooperation happening there. And what does he say? What do they quote? They say, Why do the nations rage, verse 25, and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. And we know that word anointed one, right, uh, is Christ, Messiah. Messiah means anointed one. And the reason for that is because the person who was anointed was the king. So that title, anointed one, is talking about the king and the Messiah, Christ, same person. 
Verse 27, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Notice the connection there between the anointing. Your holy servant Jesus, who is the Christ, the Messiah, the one anointed, who will be, who is king, anointed as king. Now let's put these, eyes, uh, these things together because they've just read a psalm that says that the nations are all raging against God. They're all raging against his Messiah, his Christ. They're all plotting against him. They're, they're cooperating. They've put aside all of their differences in order to cooperate on opposing the Messiah of God. And then they look at their present circumstances and they see, well, isn't that exactly what we see happening right now? Because Herod cooperated with Pilate, cooperated with the people of Israel to put to death Jesus, the Messiah, the chosen one. And these three characters stand for three different groups of people, right? Herod is an unhelpful name. Uh, it's like uh, when last year I, I was teaching and in one of my classes we had uh, three Maxes, which is not helpful because you're trying to you know, call out for Max and, and three people put their hands up or they've all learned to just ignore it because there are three of them in the class. There are six Herods in the New Testament. So it's hard to know which one is being spoken about unless you do a little bit a bit of digging. But Herod, this is Herod uh, Antipas, who was the person in charge uh, when Jesus was crucified. He was the governor of Judea. So it was his responsibility to keep the Jews quiet slash happy slash obedient and submissive to the Romans. And so he's kind of like a Jew sympathizer. He pays lip service to the Jewish faith, but not enough to actually submit himself to Yahweh. And then Pontius Pilate is the Roman official, the, the Roman ruler of that area. Uh, so Herod is employed by the Roman uh, Empire as the governor of that region, and Pilate is the uh, military official who looks after the whole area. And so he represents the, the Gentiles, the, the non-Jews. Not only do you have those two people cooperating with each other, it also says that the people of Israel opposed Jesus, the ones who were meant to accept their Messiah. And so the disciples are seeing for the first time, their eyes are open to see that the Old Testament is all about Jesus. And they go, here's the anointed one. Here's the Christ. He's been here. And we've seen this psalm fulfilled in our very presence. All of these nations are conspiring against Jesus and against his anointed one. Now, that's a difficult thing. Think about it for a moment. Because these people, these three groups, which one of them had good motives? None. Which one of them was innocent of sin in that scenario, in the story of Jesus being crucified? None. We see them acting through sinful motivations, through lack of submission to God, lack of obedience, through ignorance, through all of those things. And yet, have a look at the rest of that. It says... Your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. So they're acting through brokenness and through the sinfulness of humanity, and yet it is God's hand, it is God's will, and it is God's foreknowledge that applies in that situation. They cannot help but play into the plan of God. Now, God didn't make those things, God didn't make murder. God didn't tell people to murder. God is a God of justice, and yet Jesus' death 
was the most apparent miscarriage of justice that there ever has been. And yet, even in that, God is working. Does that sit well with you? Does that make sense with you? That even when people are doing the wrong thing from the wrong motives, God is still working. God is still working to bring about his ultimate plan. Because you see, the idea of divine sovereignty and human responsibility are paradoxical, right? They, 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 they exist together, but they don't quite make sense. But they're not contradictory. They're not incompatible because we see it play out everywhere. Case in point, there's no greater example than in, in Jesus' death on the cross because God's been planning that for a long time. And yet it was through the, the, the worst possible human behavior that God actually achieved that purpose. Right? Is, it, is the significance of this landing, right? It, because we look around church so often and we see people behaving badly. We're like, surely, like, this is the church. You know, surely people behave well in here. Well, I'm sorry. We're sinful just like the rest of the world. We're forgiven and we're on a path of sanctification. But people in here still mess up. Does that mean God doesn't still get his way in the end? Does that mean God is not still presently working through people doing the wrong thing? Through people arguing with each other, people having different perspectives, or, or even doing something you know, terrible? Does, does that thwart the purpose of God? No. And I would, I would present to you the idea that it has to be that way. For God to be sovereign, he has to be able to operate through our sinful behavior. Okay, because we exist. God is not going to conform each of us against our will. He wants us to grow in our likeness to Jesus. And so for his sovereignty to be real and to exist, it means that he has to be able to work in and through people behaving sinfully. Now, I'm not sanctioning that, obviously. I'm not saying go ahead and sin and do what you want because God's going to win. No. But what I'm saying is that your perception, you're seeing other people do the wrong thing or even you making a mistake, right? Even, even your frailty and your, your ignorance or your lack of ability or your lack of strength, even that cannot derail the purposes of God. Is that not a comfort to you? Because it is a comfort to me. And it is a comfort to know that all of the static in my life means nothing when God is going to achieve his purposes. God is always going to achieve his purposes. These two things are paradox together, but they're not incompatible. But what is incompatible is divine sovereignty and human sovereignty. That doesn't work. Because even though these people thought that they were acting out of control, exerting some kind of control and ultimate destiny over what was going on, they could not help but play into God's ultimate plan. And it's why the Bible tells us that no power has been established, no rulers, no government, no authority has been established unless God has put it there. And you say, well, why did God put such a, a jerk in charge of country X? Well, because he's sovereign and he can still work through somebody who's you know, a, a nugget. 
<laughs> Sorry. That's a word that we use in our house for silly people. God is still getting his way. Human sovereignty and divine sovereignty are incompatible. God is always working towards his aim. Nothing stops God. Not our sinful behavior, not our ignorance, not the opposition of the devil. You know, he thought that he was going to make some ground. Turns out he was like a toddler running into the legs of God trying to take him off his path. Not the corruption of the natural world, not anyone's spiritual blindness, not our frailty. None of them are going to stop God ultimately achieving his purpose. And, you know, for us to sort of bring ourselves in line with that, all we have to do sometimes is to just look back far enough and see the bigger picture because God sees the bigger picture constantly. He sees this moment and he knows how you feel in this moment, but he sees the bigger picture constantly. And if you look back far enough, you can see that actually I'm closer today to where God wants me to be, to the direction that God's been taking me than I was back then. Despite the static, despite the mess, despite the difficulty, I'm closer now than I was back then. So maybe you should take stock. Maybe have a look at what your life looked like five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20. Some of you have had the, the blessing of seeing God work over, over a long period of time. And, and, you know, I think that's why generally we get a, a bit more, you know, calm, resilient as we get older is because we've seen God's faithfulness for a longer amount of time. But for those of us who are, who are still in the, in the young category who haven't seen God show up time and time and again, year after year after year, decade after decade, well, we need to go to this book to find out what God is like because he is a person that we can trust. God's sovereignty should lead us to rest. To rest in the fact that he's sovereign. To breathe in and breathe out. God's got it. That's awfully simple. Is it really that simple? Yes. Yes, it is. God's in control. He's got it. But it's so easy. It's so easy for doubts to come into our mind. And there, there are going to be people who are, you know, looking at their circumstances and feeling what they're in at their moment, what they're in at the moment, and they might say, you know what? I know that God is in control, but I'm not sure I like that. I'm not sure I like the fact that God is in control because he might be in control of what's going on, but how can I trust him? How can I trust him? Because what you're asking me to do is, is to put myself into the hands of, of an all-powerful being who's potentially vindictive or capricious or mean or bored. What's he going to do with my life? And, you know, sometimes knowing God is sovereign makes us feel worse about the situation because we go, how can God do this to me? God is in control. How can he do this to me? How can he rob me of my close relationships, of my capacity? How can he take from me the security that I had? How can he reduce 
my capacity to be able to, to give and, and to love and, and to share with other people? How can he make me go through all of these hardships? I don't think I like very much the fact that God is sovereign because that means he's got his thumb on me and he's punishing me. It's easy to feel like that, isn't it? And can I say just gently that if that's you, then you believe God is God, but you don't believe God is good. You believe that in order for God to be good, he needs to conform to your standards. Your life needs to look like what you say, not what he says. And your judgment of his goodness is based on you and your life and not on him and what he says is good. So do you believe that God is good? Believe that God is God? I had a pastor ask me a life-changing question <laughs> when I was thinking about you know, taking a, a leap and doing something silly, ridiculous, by worldly standards. He asked me this question, does God love you? Do you know the answer? Yes. So what's going to happen? Is God going to let you down? Is God going to leave you out in the cold? Is God going to abandon you? Does God love you? That should be a comfort to us. Does your faith reflect the fact that God loves you? Does your trust in him reflect the fact that you know he's got it and that he's not going to let you down? Why don't we just pause for a moment and just consider, take stock. Now, God's sovereignty is not arbitrary or meaningless. It's not deterministic or ruthless. God's sovereignty is based on his character, his justice, his holiness, but also his mercy, his love, his compassion. And if we know anything about God, we know that God is love. And so we need to be able to trust ourselves to the sovereignty of a God who is good, not just a God who is God. You know, it's easy to trust in circumstances that are good. The disciples have just been released from their prison, from their arrest, where their lives were threatened. They didn't know whether they were going to get crucified, just like Jesus did at the same council. And so they've just experienced God release them from that environment. And that's a very easy moment to say, God, you're sovereign. Wow, you really got me out of that one. But what is more difficult is to proclaim the sovereignty of God when the resolution is not in sight. 
And we see the disciples do that throughout the rest of the book. When Stephen gets stoned to death, they're still proclaiming the sovereignty of God. When Paul is in jail, he's writing to the, to the, to the churches saying, it's great that I'm in chains because the gospel's not changed. God's sovereign. God's still doing what God is going to do. So it's easy to trust him when circumstances are good, but it's difficult when there's no resolution in sight. Can we trust God when there's no resolution in our circumstances? It would be amiss of me to say anything other than yes, a thousand times yes, that if you know the God of this Bible, you know that yes, you can trust him even when the situation looks dire, even when your life is falling apart and you don't have any peace and you haven't had any joy for years, even when you're stuck in that miry clay in the shadow of the mountain throughout the valley, God is still good. Yes, you can trust a good and sovereign God in your life. So we return to see how they prayed as a result of declaring the sovereignty of God and declaring their rest in his sovereignty. How do they pray? Now, Lord, verse 29, consider their threats. That It literally says, look upon. Look upon their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. How can they pray so boldly? Well, there are three things. The first thing is that they can rest in the fact that God is sovereign. They found the ability to rest in that knowledge. And this week, um, my daughter, she's four and a half or almost five now, and she had uh, part of her toenail had, you know, come up, you know, when there's that really annoying, like, bit of your toe. It's kind of like pulling under your nail bed. It's quite painful. And she was in a lot of distress, and, and she, she came out, and it was like catching on her bed sheets, and she's like, you know, Daddy, can you, can you get rid of it? I was like, sure, yeah, we've just got to cut it off. Like, <gasps> it was like I was going to amputate the toe. And I had to explain to her, I was like, no, 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 your toenails don't have nerves. They don't feel anything. I mean, it's just like when, I, when you get a haircut, it's not going to hurt. You know, if anything hurts, it's going to be the nail bed. But that wasn't enough. That wasn't enough for her. And then I had to say, Evelyn, do you trust me? Would I ever hurt you on purpose? And it was based on that trust that she was able to submit to something that she didn't understand These disciples were able to trust in the sovereignty of a good God. They were able to rest. And you know what happens when you can rest in the sovereignty of God? The static starts to disappear. The second thing that they do is they recognize the big picture, that they are right in the middle of God's will because they've just identified that, you know what, actually all the things that happened to Jesus, God foretold in the Old Testament. So in fact, we are still on the path that God has set us going from the very beginning. We know that we're right in there. Even through all of our weakness and, and our mistakes, Peter knows that better than anyone. Even through all that, we are still in the center of the will of God. And so what they do at that moment is they lift their eyes above their problems. They say, Lord, Look upon their threats. We're not going to anymore. 
We're not even going to think about them. Our eyes are not going to be on their threats. Our eyes are going to be on what we've got to do. I've been incredibly encouraged reading through the Psalms recently, and I found in Psalm 60, I've stopped ignoring the opening of the Psalms, which just give a bit of context often. It's like, oh, David wrote this Psalm, or Asaph wrote this Psalm. This is a very interesting uh, pretext, context to Psalm 60. It says, to the choir master, according to whatever that means, a whatever that means of David, for instruction, right? The purpose of this Psalm is to, is to teach, for people to learn. And it, it was written when he strove with Aram Naharaim and with Aram Zobah, and when Joab on his return struck down 12,000 of Edom in the Valley of Salt. So that's the story here. And the great thing about these little context statements is that you can go back to the books of Samuel and read about those stories. So we get to see the narrative in the books of Samuel, and then we get to see David's reflections and his, his musings and his emotions in the Psalms. And so what does the Psalm say in the first couple of verses? Oh God, you've rejected us. You've broken our defenses. You've been angry. Restore us. God, you're punishing me. The, the enemies are breaking through our lines. We, we're trying to go out and, and win this battle and our defenses are broken. People are dying in my army. You've made the land to quake. You've torn it open. Repair its breaches, for it totters. You've made your people see hard things. You've given us wine to drink that made us stagger. Do you think David's complaining about the sovereignty of God at this point? <laughs> yeah, he is. Because he knows that everything is in God's hands. And so if his army is losing, he knows God's doing it or God's allowing it. And so he's expressing here that difficulty, that striving, that emotion. It's like, God, you're doing this. You, you, you've rejected us. Why? Why? But if there's one thing I've learned about David and the way that he writes his Psalms is that he always Always, without exception. I haven't got to Psalm 150 yet, but I'm confident that it's without exception. Or you can fact check me on that. Always. He goes from this point to a declaration of, you know what, God is still good. And check out verse, the end of this Psalm, verse 11 and 12. After they pray, no, sorry, that's um, back in Acts. Psalm 60, verse 11 and 12. Maybe I'll have to do it the old-fashioned way. And read it to you. Give us aid against the enemy, for human help is worthless. Vain is the salvation of man. With God we will gain the victory, and he will trample down our enemies. Always he uses these experiences to lead him back to a deeper dependence on God. And is that not what God was doing in David's heart? Here we go. Grant us the help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. With God we shall do valiantly. It is he who trod down our foes. But you know what? We can zoom out even further. We can go to 2 Samuel 8, and we can see the bigger picture, because God sees the bigger picture. And in 2 Samuel 8, it says, After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Metheg Amar out of the hand of the Philistines. And he defeated Moab. David also defeated Hadadezer. The Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. David didn't lose. He couldn't lose. He won every single one of those battles because God delivered him through them. And yet in David's moment-by-moment -moment experience, there was setback. 
There was defeat. There was struggle. There was difficulty. There was static. But if he got his eyes above that to see, you know what? I've never lost. God's delivered me through every single battle. And can I say, church, that in the end, God is delivering you through every single battle. That's not some prosperity nonsense. That is the truth. God works everything for the good of those who love him, that we might be more conformed into the image of his son. That's what he's doing in your life. The the static, all of that struggle is not without purpose. It's not without meaning, but we can lift our eyes above the suffering and see that in the bigger picture, there's been victory from start to finish. God has to work through the sinfulness of the world because we live in it. We're here, but God is still good. God is still sovereign. He will deliver you through whatever circumstances that is. And you know what I've learned is that the worry is optional. The victory is assured and the worry is optional. I was having a conversation with a pastor this week who was reflecting on, on the story of, of over his ministry and, and he would have said, you know what, there were difficult times. There were times where I lost lots of sleep, where I lost friends, where, where things were not going well and yet I look back over the bigger picture and won every single time, not through my own effort but because God delivered me through that. And he was like, the thing I regret is all of the worry I spent, all of the, the, the fear that I had that God wasn't working or that God wasn't doing things, the sleep that I lost. <laughs> I hope you get a great night's sleep. I seriously do because God is in control. And he knows whatever is going on in your life is going to work out for the good of, of you, for those around you, for the good of the kingdom of God. Oh, would you rest well? And I'll just invite the, the band up. We, we're nearly fin- finished. There are, there are three things that these disciples are able to do, have done in order to enable this bold prayer. The first one is that they're able to rest in the sovereignty of God. They're able to rest and trust that God is sovereign and that God is a good sovereign. The second thing that they've been able to do is to recognize that in the bigger picture, they are exactly where they needed to be. They've lifted their eyes above their own circumstances and they've seen, you know what? We're still moving forward. We're still gaining ground. But you need to know that they asked God to look at the problems. They said, God, you look at their threats Look upon their threats. We're not even going to consider it. We're going to focus on one thing, and that is what you've asked us to do. And that is the third thing that they've been able to do to pray this bold prayer is that they're able to see the singular focus. What has God asked me to do? What is important for me now? And for them, it is witnessing to the resurrection of Jesus. And for us, it is too. But I don't want to oversimplify what your, your life looks like because not everybody is a missionary or, or, or evangelist. We're all called to be witnesses of Christ. We're all called to, to be witnessing with our life and for God to be changing us more into the image of His Son. But that looks like different things, you know, depending on where you are. You know, you have a different opportunity in, in your workplace or in your school or in your university than someone else does. And so it would be simplistic of me to say, you know, quit everything and and go stand on a box in the streets and and preach Jesus. 
God's asking you to do that, you best say yes. But what's God asking you to do in your life? What's the most important thing? Forget the static. It's not going to stop God from achieving what he's going to achieve. What's the one thing God's asked you to do in this time? Is it to be faithful with your studies, to honour God through what you're doing? Is it to look after your family? Is it to conduct your your business honourably or to be that shining light in your workplace? Or is it simply to love your family? What is the one thing God's asked you to do? Forget about the study. Get your eyes off your problems. Ask God and say, you know what? You're good. We're still going in the same direction we always have been and we are going to get there. We're going to get there in the end and the worry is optional. What are you asking me to do? And then afterwards, God's presence floods that place so intensely that the room starts to shake, that the very physical space, the matter cannot contain the presence of God and it starts shaking. Because there's this this mixing, this this coalition of, of the people's obedience and of their surrender and of their acknowledgement of who God is and then God comes in with his presence and meets that and then there's an undeniable power and presence of God and then they, at that moment, receive the boldness to do exactly what they've asked and what God's asked them to do, which is to go and continue to be witnesses and to do it boldly. And so I wonder if you just need to clear the static in your life, if you just need to be able to lift your eyes up above. What's God asking you to do? Can you trust? Can you rest in his sovereignty? I just want to pray a a blessing of, of courage and rest over you if you'd like to to close your eyes and maybe I'll just invite everyone to stand. God, we declare that you are the same yesterday, today and tomorrow. That from the very beginning until now, you've been working together for the good of those who love you. And you know what, God, even for the good of those who don't love you, you were working so that they might come to know you. And God, we, we, we stand here, if we know Jesus, we stand here as people of, of privilege beyond compare. We've received life. We've received adoption as sons. We've been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. We're Christians. We're people who know the living God, who hear from you. We are your sheep and we listen to your voice. God, I just pray courage and peace over people here that they can trust that you are good, that they can lift their eyes up above their present circumstances. The God, you would come as a God of comfort because you promise you're going to do that. You promise that you're going to stay near to the brokenhearted, that a bruised reed you will not break. And some people right now just need your presence. They need your assurance. But sometimes we can carry around that fear like a heavy iron ball. 
And the comfort means nothing if we're still holding on to it. Help us, Lord, to put it down, to give it into your hands and say, you know what, God, you look at this. It's too heavy for me. I'm not even going to look at it anymore. It's at the foot of your cross. I'm going to look to you. And God, I pray that even at this moment, you would just be dropping clarity into people's minds about what is it that you have asked them to do? What's the most important thing in their life in this season? And I pray that that would stick in their mind for as long as it needs to, to give them the courage and the peace and the motivation that they need for however long that season is. And God, we even stand here as a church knowing that what you started in the beginning, you are still doing. Nothing stopped it. Nothing is standing in its way. And we simply want to say yes. Help us to lift up our eyes, to look to you. God, what are you asking us to do?